I hope you are coming in and um, that this service so far has been encouraging to you. And my prayer is, is that God speaks to you through his word. This morning, I, I want to say we're going to go from bad to great to glorious. Because as we look at what we're going to be looking at this morning, that's what it is. Bad and not good, great and then glorious. So we're going to be continuing in our series on David. And I don't know about you, but as I've been reading through things with David, we tend to find David in a certain setting, in a certain place. And it's a place that we might not be familiar with location-wise, but it is a place that all of us at some point in our life are going to be. And that place is the wilderness. David is in the wilderness. David flees to the wilderness. He ends up making good and bad choices in the wilderness. He's discouraged. He has some character. And he spent a considerable amount of time thinking about how he was anointed to be king of Israel, and he still isn't. The wilderness is a crazy place for David. It's a hard place. And for some of you this morning, you have walked in here today. And you are in the wilderness. Circumstances in your season of life are hard. And you come in and you are fleeing, you are wandering, you're hiding. You're making good and bad choices. And you're facing tough circumstances. You are in the wilderness right now. Others of you are just coming out of the wilderness. You have gone through it. You've gone through these hard times. You've dealt with these tough circumstances and you're coming out and you have a new perspective. And others of you, unfortunately, are about ready to head into the wilderness and you don't know it yet. See, all of us at some point are going to be in the wilderness. We're going to wander into the wilderness because it's often that we find God speaking in the wilderness. And it's where we often have to come and fully surrender to God's glory and amazing, amazing grace. The wilderness is an important place. Like last week, Pastor Rob took us to how God and how David dealt with discouragement. And this week, we're going to see a lot of discouragement. David probably is hitting the pinnacle of his discouragement. And he's going to go from discouragement to uncertainty. He's not sure what is going to take place. But what we find here in the text that we're looking at this morning is a different David. It's a transformed David. And it's a transformation that each of us who claim to know Jesus Christ have to go through. So if you have your Bibles, pull them out. If you need to turn on your Bible or if you need to get a Bible in the rack in front of you, get that and turn to 1 Samuel 30. The Bible's in the rack. It's page 292. And we're going to start at the beginning of that chapter. Now just a little bit of catching up. 
In just the previous chapter, David has been with the Philistines, and he has taken his men, his 600 men, and he has gone out to go to battle with the Philistines, but he is going to be fighting Saul. And so as they're going out and and marching out, at some point during that time, the leaders of the Philistine army think it's not a good idea to have David with us. Because David could turn and want to start to to fight against us so that he gets in the good graces with Saul. And so they decide, the leadership decides, to send David and his 600 men back to Ziklag where they stay. Now David made a choice. And in that, what we find is this sending back that the men decide is really a spot where God shows up. It's a divine place where God shows up and he is going to protect David from making an awful decision, this decision that David got himself into. And so God rescues him and sends him back to where his families are. And that's where we get to in 1 Samuel 30. Start reading along with me in verse 1. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Anahim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. And I want to stop there for a moment. If you've been following this series, one of the things that you'll notice is that there is always a contrast between Saul and David. And what we find is that that contrast is happening here in the first five verses, even though Saul's name isn't mentioned. See, what's happening should have never taken place. It should have never happened. I don't know about you, but I, uh, have you ever had the check engine light come on in your vehicle? You know, that orangish yellow light that comes on and tells you that something is going wrong. Or maybe you've had something go off in your house with an appliance and you've been given this warning or something that's going to take place with your home and you've been given the warning. And I'm not going to tell you all of my mistakes with those warnings because there are many. But that check engine light has come on and we put it off and we say, we can wait, we can wait a little bit longer and we put it off and we put it off and we put it off and eventually, 
more destruction happens to our vehicle or our home or an appliance or whatever. We didn't heed the warning or the command to go and take care of that thing at that moment. That's what's happening here. See, if you were to go back and if we were to flip over to 1 Samuel 15 in the first nine verses of that chapter, what we see is that Saul has been set up as king and he has been given a command by God to go to battle and to completely wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. He is told to destroy them, to kill everyone from the army, to kill their families, their livestock, their homes, Everything is to be totally destroyed. And so Saul does that. He goes, and he goes to battle, and he fights them, except he doesn't heed the command of God. He ends up taking some of the plunder of some of the things of the Amalekites. He ends up taking them into his kingdom. He takes some of the people. He doesn't completely destroy them. And he ends up having them there. And because of his decision to not destroy them, we find that that's the moment that David ends up becoming the anointed king of Israel. His decision to disobey God brings about David's reign. But what we also find out is that his decision back in chapter 15 completely impacts David and all of his men. See, the Amalekites were like the the ISIS of the day. They were a complete terror and they were inhumane. And they were supposed to be wiped off. And so Saul's disobedience has led David and his men to lose absolutely everything. See, this is the, the, the contrast here, is that we see Saul is a man who is more concerned of how he looks as king than having the heart of a king that follows God. And what we're going to see here in chapter 30 is that David is one that is being transformed to have the heart of God. And so David and his men... They've traveled probably around 100 miles going out to battle with all their gear, all their supplies, and coming back. And as they are getting there, exhaustion has got to be setting in. They've got to be wearing down. And there's probably discussions of, I can't wait to, wait to see my wife and kids. And they're looking forward to being home and, and getting the food and the meals there instead of out at battle. On top of that, you have to understand that David and his men at this point have probably been wandering around from here to there for about 10 years. 10 years of wondering, when is it going to be safe to go home? When is David finally going to be king of Israel? When is this going to take place? When I read this text, I like to have pictures go through my mind, and I can picture the men, the 600 men coming back, and they are at a ridge, and knowing that right over that ridge is Ziklag and their families, and all they end up seeing as they're getting there is a cloud of smoke. Smoke of destruction. 
Everything is wiped out. Nobody is there. And uncertainty is hovering. Tears are flowing. And the season of the wilderness is very, very heavy. See, it was David's decision to go. It was David's decision to take all the men and go to battle. And his one decision of leaving Ziklag unguarded meant that it impacted every single family that had been with him. His one decision. And now we see that everybody is struggling. Church, life is hard. Life is extremely hard. And when we see, when we clearly kind of just look at David's life, we can see that life is hard whether it's in the wilderness or it's in the palace. Life is tough. And we think that it shouldn't be tough. But when we're going through the wilderness, we often are saying, where is God? Where is God in all of this? What is happening? Why is this taking place? And for some of you, you might be thinking about that today. You might be wondering, where is God? And even struggling with sitting in this room right now, saying, I don't know if I buy on, into this because I am in the wilderness, and I don't want you to leave here today thinking that everything ends there. Because what I want you to understand is in the wilderness... God desires to reveal his perfect compassion, his generous heart, and his complete grace to transform you. He wants to transform you in the wilderness. Within just a couple of chapters, we see a changing David. See, David doesn't run back to Achish to say, this is what took place. He, he doesn't look for a friend, but what it seems to take place is that he ends up remembering some wisdom that a friend brought to him at one point. See, folks, the devastation, this, this wilderness is going to come, and it's either going to bring out the best in you or the worst in you. Last week, I was flying home from Dallas with Vance Fresher, our children's pastor. And as we got to the airport, we were flying Southwest Airlines. And if you know Southwest, they don't give you a seat. So you get there and you are herded in to an airplane like you are part of a cattle herd. Okay? So we forgot to check in early. We checked in a little later, which meant that we were going to be in the second group going in. Well, on the way down to Dallas, we sat in the very last row where the seats do not go back at all. For somebody who's 6'3", that is torture. So we were going in, and we knew that we probably wouldn't get the most glorious seats on the airplane. And so we're looking and looking, and... Vance finds one, he puts his bag in, and I end up going further and further back. And my thought is, I'm going to have the last row, I'm going to have the last row. Why? Why is this happening? <laughs> Just as I was at the middle of the airplane, there was a middle seat. 
and I hate middle seats, but there was a middle seat. And I put my stuff down, and I sat there, and the reason it was so great was because it was the exit row. It meant my legs could stretch out, no problem at all. I didn't care that I had two other guys next to me. This was going to be a relaxing flight home. Well, if you've flown an exit row, you know that whenever the flight attendant comes, they ask you a question. In the case of an emergency, are you willing to help evacuate the airplane? And of course, everybody in those rows answer yes. But there's this thought that goes through my mind. If we were really going down, would I help every person on this airplane get off? I mean, if we were flying over the, over the ocean, my greatest fear is that I'm going to be eaten alive by a shark. There is no way that I'm going to be somebody that's rescuing these other people. But then I, in my head, I'm just running this through. Would I? I hope that I would be somebody that would help all these people off the airplane. And everybody in that row is answering yes, not because they are thinking, yeah, I can do that. They're thinking, this is comfortable. <laughs> so... We answer, flight attendant walks away, and I have this conversation in my mind, and the guy next to me starts laughing, looks at me, he goes, you know, this plane, if this plane's going down, I'm probably the guy that's going to be pushing the little old lady out of the way to get out. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you don't say that out loud. <laughs> that's not the way it should go. And yet... What he was saying was exactly what takes place. Because when the wilderness comes, when the destruction comes, when the time for decision comes, either the best or the worst is going to come out of us. David's men are wanting to kill him. They're wanting to stone him. The worst is coming out in them. In fact, if you look at the text, the word that is put with them is bitterness. Because bitterness makes you ugly. It desires the worst for others. It never heals. Bitterness wants to strangle hope. And eventually it splits our lives into more discouragement. But remember... Just you have to remember this, that in the wilderness, God desires to reveal his perfect compassion, his generous heart and complete grace to transform you. That's what he wants to do. So let me ask you, where are you finding your strength? Where are you finding your strength? At some point, you are going to be confronted with the wilderness and you have to know where are you finding your strength. Is it that you are coming home fully discouraged and so you sit down in front of a TV hoping that getting lost in entertainment will take the wilderness away? Or maybe you are someone that is just wanting to point the finger at everybody else and blame everybody else so that the wilderness would leave your life and it would go to somebody else's life. Maybe you are fleeing into the arms of alcohol or drugs or pornography or an affair or your bank account. Thinking that if you run there, strength will come to you. 
And the decision that we have to make is where are we going to find our strength? If we look at 1 Samuel 30, when we get into this text, we end up seeing at the end of verse 6, it says, But David found strength in the Lord his God. This is a transformed David. What's interesting is just seven chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 23, there is an incredible scene where Saul's son, Jonathan, David's best friend, comes to him. Comes to meet him in a time of need. And there, in that text, it says this. It says, And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. The next words after that that Jonathan says to David is, Don't be afraid. In the wilderness, what we are being taught is that we are to find strength in God, and because we find strength in Him there, we shouldn't be afraid. See, David needed that reminder. He needed that reminding from a friend of where to find that. And so now in chapter 30, we see that David is surrendering in the most desperate of hours and finds strength in God. See, in our desperate times, in our wilderness times, it is our tendency to either allow others in or close them off. And so I want to ask you, who is speaking truth into your life right now? Who are you allowing in to say, this is what God wants to do? This is how God moves. This is the compassion, the generosity, and the grace of God. Who are you allowing in? Or who are you going and speaking to and speaking the truth of Jesus Christ to? All of us have that decision to make in this room. What are we going to do? In the wilderness. And so David's finding strength in God, not in his identity as the anointed king of Israel, not in his identity as somebody who has won battles, not in his identity of defeating Goliath. He is finding his identity and his strength in the Lord Most High. And he knows he's an undeserved recipient of compassion, generosity, and grace. And so David seeks God's will at that time. The text goes on, and I want to pick it up in verse 9. Because what we see unfold is absolutely amazing. It says in verse 9, David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley. And I want you to remember that word, Besor. Where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the others, the other 400, continued in pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kurthites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. 
David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will make you, and I will take you down to them. He led David down and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day. And none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. Now get this. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder! When David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the, at the Besor Valley, they came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. And then the rest of the chapter talks about how David has taken all of that he got and he gave it to those of the um, raided parties and then other areas. And because of that, it ends up helping him set up his reign as king. Now, in this story, God has been moving, God has been talking and doing things for David. And so what we have to look at and say, what do we learn from this? I believe one of the things that we have to understand is this, is that the compassion, generosity, and grace of God radically transforms your wilderness and gives you hope to enter the wilderness of others. It gives you hope to enter the wilderness of others. See, God has compassion for David, and it changes David's perspective on the season of life that he's in. I mean, do you notice the men were bitter? They wanted to stone him. And yet when David found strength in God, God does the unbelievable and that those that wanted to kill David followed him. Not because of a great speech, but because he was moving, and they end up following David, and only God could do that. Now notice what happens. They find this Egyptian slave, and if you understand history and the word of God, like these men did, these Israelites knew that their ancestors were put in slavery by the Egyptians. And they come across an Egyptian 
slave. They knew what the Egyptians had done. And if you were the Egyptian slave and you are laying there and see 400 Israelites coming towards you, all hope is lost at that time. And what do they do? They give this man food, not knowing at that point where he was from or what he was doing. And they gave him food when food was probably at an all-time low. In fact, some commentators say that the food that they gave this Egyptian slave was some of the best food that they could possibly give. It wasn't anything ordinary. And the man admits to being present in the destruction of Ziklag and the taking of all the families. And if you are one of the soldiers who has a sword around your waist, on just hearing that, not knowing if your family is alive, at that point, you are probably wanting to kill him. I mean, this was an enemy that had years and years of bitterness against him. And David gives him compassion in the same manner that the good Samaritan gives compassion in the parable of Jesus. It's unexpected. And it's because David, who is an undeserving recipient of compassion and generosity and grace, passes it on to the next undeserved recipient. So what are you doing with what God's given you? With the compassion that God has poured out on your life, with the generosity that he's given, even if you are in the wilderness right now looking, what has God given you? The grace that he's giving you, what are you doing with it? How are you revealing the incredible work of God to the people around you? Are you passing it on to others? See, often in the desperate times of the wilderness, we just want things to go back to the way they were. That's what's wrong with us. We want it to just go back to the way it was. Nothing, nothing more, nothing less, just the way it was. And yet, David pursues the Amalekites and ends up leaving 200 of his 600 men at this Valley of Besor, or what some translations call the Brook of Besor, and goes on with 400. He finds the Amalekites, and he rampages the camp, and he fights for almost 24 hours. Renewed strength comes to them. In those times when we just want life to go back to the way it was, we have to be reminded of this. Because in verses 17 through 19, we end up seeing that God is generous beyond, beyond any thought that these men had. Notice what happens. They are given everything back. Nothing was missing Every human life was back, every possession, and then they even got more possessions, more plunder. In fact, they were greater at that point. They just wanted their family back. And God provides a victory 
and they gain more. So they head back. And this is the part that is just absolutely amazing to me. They head back to the brook of Besor, to the 200 that are exhausted. And they're reunited with the families. And the soldiers that went and fought, bitterness is still grabbing them. They don't want these 200 that stayed with supplies to get any of the plunder. They don't want them to have any, just their families. And this bitterness is is just grabbing them. But we noticed something about David. Last week, Rob talked to us in, in, in 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. He pointed out that David at that point was fearful, never mentions God, but mentions Saul twice. And it's because David is fearing and thinking about himself, his own life. But then we get here. And look at what David does. He ends up coming to them in verse 21. And as he's walking up, probably full of dirt and blood from battle, he comes up to those that were sitting there and says, how are you? His concern is for them. He's wondering how they're doing, how they're physically doing. And he doesn't make any declaration of the battle that he won or how many people he killed or what took place. But he represents the compassion and the generosity and the grace of God to those 200. And then we see him enact a kingly ordinance. And even though the bitterness was there, David realizes what God has done. And he says, all will share alike. Now, many commentators looking at this say that that decision, the decision that David made, was a pointing of a messianic rule. That by what David is doing in 1 Samuel 30, he is pointing to Jesus, to the compassion and the generosity and the grace of Jesus. And so David was learning and living what we are to learn. And it's that the compassion, the generosity, and grace of God radically transforms your wilderness and gives you hope to enter the wilderness of others. How are you? All will share alike. He's entering the wilderness of others. This hope is where I want to conclude. I want to conclude with a pointing forward. Because what happens in this area, this valley of Besor, the brook of Besor, is exactly the place that we need to come this morning. You might read that and not think anything of it. But when we translate the word besor, that word is translated good news or incarnation. See, they're at this place and the actions and the heart of men was being transformed. They were having to be transformed at that 
place because there was good news. There was an incarnation that was happening. Those men and those families were given new life. They were given a new life that they didn't expect. They were reunited. They had these possessions brought back. Grace was given. And community was being lived out in God's ways. Incarnation came through David. And if you Google or look up the definition of incarnation, what you find there is a person who embodies the flesh of a deity, spirit, or abstract quality. And David is at a key place at the brook of Besor, and he's saying, there is good news. There is good news that is here, and there is good news that is coming. And this morning, as you are walking through the wilderness, or you know somebody that's in the wilderness, you have to come to the brook of Besor, because good news is found there. We understand that Jesus is that good news who comes to give us new life, to say your sin and your shame means nothing anymore because I have covered it with my blood and I have defeated the evil one. When we are in the wilderness, we have to remember the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as disciples of him, that is our message. And we have to speak it to ourselves sometimes. And we have to speak it to others. So where are you finding your strength? Where are you going? Are you exhausted? Are you wandering? Are you tired? Well, good news has come. Jesus is present in our wilderness with all the compassion, all the generosity, and all the grace that you can think of and more. And we have to go and find our strength there. See, David knew he was undeserving. He was undeserving of what God had poured out on him. And then he gives the same compassion and generosity and grace onto the other undeserving. And so how will you find strength in God? For some of you this morning, it's your time to come back to him. For some of you, it's to start. You've been trying and trying to live life a certain way, and it's time to come to Jesus and find your strength there. His compassion, his generosity, and his grace is ready to give you strength. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning that we that are gathered here would gather at the shore of Besor, and that we would remember the good news, the good news that you have come to give us new life. And I ask, Lord, that we would rest in that, that we would find our strength in that, and that we would live from that. 
If we need to hear that this morning, pour that into our minds. If somebody else needs to hear it, I pray that you would send us to them. And then, Lord, right now, as we gather here, since all that we have belongs to you, I pray that as we give this offering, that we would give generously with incredibly grateful hearts for all that you have done for us. I pray that you would use this offering for your glory so that this would be a church that continues to proclaim good news in the wilderness. It's in your name I pray. Amen.